pray that you would be honored and glorified this morning in, in the preaching of your word. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, Psalm 19. This is God's word. To the choir master, a psalm of David. He says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber. And like a strong man who runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, and the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening his eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Well, the book of God's creation, it's all around us. You know, here in what we affectionately call as the Tot, Botetot County, you know, it, it, it's beautiful, right? We moved from Greenville, North Carolina, which is pretty in its own right, but it has nothing compared to Botetot County, I'm just having to say. Sorry, Leslie. Um, Leslie is a dear friend of mine and her husband, Judson, Judson right? Who are visiting with us today. So anyway, I just want to say shout out to you guys. Glad y'all are here. But it is so gorgeous here, right? And oftentimes I need fresh perspective. I need new perspective. I get caught up in the details and the fray of life and sermon prep. And so it's kind of nice having this beautiful property here to walk around. So if you're driving by, you'll often see me just walking around in the front yard. I probably look like a crazy guy in an insane asylum just walking around, praying around our property. But, you know, it's so beautiful here. I'm counting gopher holes. There are tons of gopher holes around here on our property. Uh, and we have a beautiful piece of property, right? It, it's this view out of our sanctuary window. You know, wow, just gorgeous. And I often wonder, you know, what, you, know, you often wonder, what's going through a preacher's mind as he's preaching? Well, what, you know what goes through my mind often is, are they really listening to me? Or are they looking out these windows at the hawks flying? And I know that's okay. As you can listen to God's word preached and you can look out the view of this window and it's beautiful right and I think really I think in a sense that's purposely our, our sanctuary whoever designed this was was right in the way that they designed our sanctuary to mimic what Psalm 19 proclaims okay that Psalm 19 is teaching us about God's creation but at the same time it's teaching about God's word the preciousness of God's word so we see this grand view right out of our front window at least you guys get to see it I don't and while you're taking in this awesome view, at the same time, you're hearing God's precious word proclaimed. And that's kind of what Psalm 19 is doing for us here. It's a both-and kind of deal. So as you read Psalm 19, it almost appears like you have two different psalms. You know, the first six verses talk about this broad sweep of God's creation. He reveals Himself through His creation, right? And then you get through to the second part of the psalm, 7 through 10. It talks about the beauty and the preciousness of God's Word. Then you get to 11 through 14. It's, it's more about our response to what we've seen in creation and in the preciousness of God's Word. See, he's already appreciating God's Word right there in His creation. It's the worshiper's response. Uh, so Psalm 19, in a sense, is a reminder. It's this invitation to bring you back to this revelation that God desires for you to know Him. That's what you're made for. I love Young Life. It's a ministry to high school students, ministry that we support as a church. And I love their tagline. It's relatively new. Their trademark, their tagline is this. You were made for this. You were made for this. What are you made for as a Christian, as a believer? What are you made for? What is the point of the Christian's life. Well, we're good Presbyterians. We love the catechisms, right? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, we, I think we referred to this last Sunday. What's the chief end? What's the chief reason that you, God made you, right? 
to what? To know him and to enjoy him, to glorify him and to enjoy him, right? But what do you think the message of the Christian culture is around us most of the time? If you go and you were to ask somebody, what's the point of the Christian life? Well, you're going to get various responses, right? Probably here. For me, the center of the Christian life is to find forgiveness. Or for me, you know, oh, I love that I've found peace with God. Or, or I love that, that God has helped me find purpose in my life. And those are all good. Those are all right. And those are all part of the blessings of being a Christian. But you know, I think the very purpose of my life, of your life, is to know God and to glorify God. Not just to have a good experience or just to receive His blessings. And I think even Jesus gives us that definition of what's the center of the Christian's life. The main thing, if you will, of the Christian's life. You go to John 17. If you know John 17, that's Jesus' high priestly prayer. He, he prays to His Father. It's a beautiful prayer. He prays to His Father. Then He begins to pray for His disciples. Then He begins to pray for future believers over the ages. And in John 17, 3, Jesus gives us the center of what Christianity or a relationship with God is about. He says this. He says, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. To, here's language there. To know God. To know Jesus Christ whom God has sent. And so Psalm 19 is almost like an Old Testament version of John 17.3. It's a meditation on that theme. But David even says that this is a meditation, right? He ends the psalm. Verse 14, what does he say? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, Lord. It's almost like David's a little kid here, a little child spiritually going, okay, Daddy, looking up. Daddy, did I get it right? Did my meditation about knowing you, did I get it right, Dad? Did I get it right? Are these first 13 verses, Daddy, are they, are they the right things? Did I say the right thing of, of how someone comes to know you? And if you look at this psalm, it really, particularly in the ESV, I think the ESV does a good job of breaking it up kind of see three major sections here. Just pick up the song, look at it. You see how it's broken up kind of into three major sections here. First section, first six verses, David speaks about what? Nature, okay? The second section here, broken out, 7 through 11, what does he speak about? He speaks about his Bible, about Scripture, about the Word of God. Verses 12 through 14, it, he speaks about his conscience or the heart. So it's almost like, here's what he's doing. It's almost like he's saying God's revelation is written to us in three volumes. Three books, three volumes. The first volume is God reveals himself to us in the book of nature, of creation. Second volume that David lays out for us, Psalm 19, God reveals himself in the book of Scripture, in the Word of God. And then the third book that he gives us is God reveals himself to us in our consciences, in our hearts. So let's just quickly this morning each open up each one of these volumes. Uh, nature is the first volume. God's Word or the Bible is the second volume. The third volume is conscience or heart. So the first book here, we'll open up this volume. Volume number one, first six verses. God tells us how he writes the book of nature. The heavens declare the glory of God. Now many of us are familiar with the Old Testament idea or word glory, Right? And it c carries this idea of weightiness or of heaviness, of weight. You know, in our times, often we can measure someone, not necessarily rightly, but often we kind of measure each other's worth, right? We measure each other's glory by the significance of the weight of our possessions, okay? So think about it like this. Just like in the Old Testament, sometimes even the New Testament, someone's possessions were mentioned. They would, for instance, me uh, mention gold or silver, and often the weight of that gold or the weight of that silver was mentioned because according to the weight that they owned, it kind of measured up to their glory or their value. So David's basically saying here from the get-go, he's saying, you look at the heavens, you look at the glory of the heavens around you, can you weigh the weightiness of the heavens? Can you weigh the weightiness of the universe? It's immeasurable, he's saying. I read a fascinating article this week from Nature Magazine. I don't know if you guys read that, but they have a great uh, website, you know, their online version of their magazine on nature. And uh, they were a team of scientists, and this is my PowerPoint presentation for you this morning. I know you can all see that so clearly. Plug for getting PowerPoint here someday. So anybody want to donate the PowerPoint screens, that would be great. So here we go. Here's my PowerPoint illustration. Here it is. A few slides. 
But this article, there were some scientists from Hawaii talking about the, our known universe and, and what they're understanding about in their research of our known universe. And they have made some new advances in their understanding of our known universe. And so that's what this article talks about. The name of the article is The Most Detailed Map Yet of Our Place in the Universe. So let me just share with you. I wish I could show you this picture. I'll just walk around and be like show and tell. Let's just do that. So, so it says that we know that the earth, or this is us, this little red dot, I know you can't see it, but this little red dot is the Milky Way. We live in the galaxy called the Milky Way, right? Okay. So they say that we know that the earth and the solar system are located in the Milky Way galaxy, but how exactly does the Milky Way, this little dot, fit in among the billions, billions of other galaxies in our known universe? In a fascinating new study for nature, a team of scientists mapped thousands of galaxies in our immediate vicinity and discovered that the Milky Way is part of a jaw-droppingly massive supercluster of galaxies called Lana, Lana, I'm not pronouncing this rightly, but I think it's Lanakea. So this white kind of mass that looks almost like a web, spider's web, if you will, each one of these white, this white is comprised of a white pixel or a dot. Each little white pixel or dot is one galaxy. And you can't count that, can you? I mean, it's, it's an innumerable number, and that's one galaxy, and that's just one supercluster, they're saying. Only, let me keep reading. The structure is much, much bigger, no doubt, than the astronomers had previously realized. Lanakea contains more than 100,000 galaxies, this white mass, that stretches over 500 million light years across. This is the Milky Way, 500 million light years across to get just to the other side of this one supercluster. They don't know how many thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, or millions of superclusters of galaxies there are. But just our neck of the woods is 500 million light years across. If you were going the speed of light, it would take you 500 million years to get from here to here. Astounding, isn't it, right? It gets better. So then they go and they say, it's hard to wrap one's head around how enormous this is. Thank you for making that point. Each of those points of light is an individual galaxy. Each galaxy, so just our little galaxy, the Milky Way, each galaxy contains millions, billions, perhaps trillions of stars. Just our one Milky Way. Times hundreds of thousands of galaxies. I can't even do the math. I can't even write a million. <laughs> That's astounding, right? Oh, and this is just a local corner of an even broader universe, they say. There are many other galaxy superclusters like Lanakea out there. You know what the word Lanakea means in Hawaiian? It means immeasurable heavens. It's just an apt name, isn't it? Lanakea. Immeasurable heavens. But David didn't have access to the technology, to the telescopes, the, the, the satellites that we have, right? But he still could get up in the morning and look out at the heavens. He could look at the sunrise with his visible eye, right? And express to us the worthiness of the worship of who God is. That he's worthy to be worshipped, right? So God has shown us his worthiness. He's revealed his attributes and the things that he's made. It's like what Paul says if you go to Romans 1. Romans 1 really kind of explains Psalm 19 in a way. Paul, what does he say in Romans 1? He's talking about the goodness of God and re revealed in the things that he's made so that his invisible worthiness is made known through his visible creation, right? And notice how David mentions this amazing revelation. Verse 2, what does he say? That it's perpetual. That day after day it pours out speech. Night after night, night his creation reveals knowledge. It's almost like David's talking about this grand sanctuary it's like this giant antiphonal choir. There's two choirs facing one another. If you know what an antiphonal choir is, it's two choirs singing, and sometimes they sing in unison, and sometimes one choir sings this, and the other choir responds, and they kind of go back and forth. So David's given us the picture here that our universe is this grand temple of the Lord where we have day and night these antiphonal choirs singing back and forth as they're facing one another, and day, day is singing the day, going, God is glorious, and night is singing tonight, God is glorious, in this unending anthem of praise with the Creator, for the Creator. And then he says that God has spoken in creation, not only in this perpetual way of day singing after day, and night singing after night, but even in a multilingual way. What does he say? There is no speech. 
There is no voice where His voice is not heard. That His words go to the very ends of the earth, don't they? That there's no language barriers here in God's creation. God has spoken the glory of His creation. You see, there is no man or woman in this room, none of us, who can go and hide from the revelation that God has given us. No, None of us can hide from it. And not only does he talk about the range of God's self-revelation, that it goes everywhere, but he even talks about the staggering beauty of God's revelation in nature. David mentions that as well. He uses two of these illustrations. And by the way, these thoughts, many of these thoughts, most of these thoughts are from my old pastor, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, just to give credit where credit's due. But he uses two precious illustrations here, talking about the beauty of God's revelation in nature. He says about the sun. Listen to what he says. I love it in verse 5. About the sun as part of creation. He says that as the sun comes out, it's like the bridegroom leaving his chambers. Now if you've ever attended a wedding service, right, and I know Wellspring's not quite set up like many traditional churches are, but there's usually two high points, right, in a wedding service. And one high point is a little bit higher than the other high point, but nonetheless, they're both high points, okay? And the first high point that you see as you attend a wedding service is the bridegroom often it's in a sanctuary that has a door to the left or a door to the right, right? And you see the bridegroom coming out. He's a little bit nervous. You know, he's kind of got that nervous smile. <laughs> and he comes out with his best man, his dad, or maybe his best friend. And they come out, and the door kind of magically opens, and he appears, and he walks out excited, right? And, you know, every eye in the congregation is on him as he and his best man walk in. And then we get to the second high point, if you will, when the doors of the sanctuary in the rear are closed, right? And this is the higher high point of the service, right? And I'm, one of the perks of, being, of my job as a pastor is I get to see what very few of you see, unless you're cheating and you're turning around going like this. Don't do that. I'm, always, I'm the only one who's supposed to see this. I'm just kidding. But you see the doors swing open in the back, the organ music or the, the keyboard or whatever, the orchestra, the music raises right. And there's his bride, the bridegroom's bride. It's just a power. It's an awesome moment. I love That's one of my favorite things in ministry is to see her smile on her face. Oh, it's so good. So precious. And that's the picture that David is conveying to us. The joy of creation. The bridegroom coming from his chambers like the sun. The joy of his creation. And the message that his son sends. Then he uses this other illustration. He says the heavens are like a strong man who runs his course with joy I don't know if you remember the Ethiopian runners back in the Olympics, the Atlanta Olympics in 96, and then this 2000 Sydney Olympics, but his name was ha- Halle Gebrselassie. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it correctly. Halle Gebrselassie. He was Ethiopian. He was running the 10,000 meter, 10 kilometer event. And he, he ran in an odd way. When you saw him run, you know, he, his right arm was doing the normal thing, but his left arm was cocked up like this. And this is the way he ran. And it just looked kind of odd, right? Until you understood Halley's backstory, he grew up in Ethiopia and he would have to run 10 kilometers to school one way every day. And once he was done with school, he would run back 10 kilometers. I think if you do the math, that's 6.2 miles. Thank you. Yeah, so it's 6.2 miles to school, 6.2 miles back. Kids, if you're complaining about the bus, quit complaining about the bus. You don't have to run 6.2 miles to school, okay? So he would run 6.2 miles to school, 6.2 miles back carrying his books. He didn't have a backpack. So that's why he ran that way. That's why he grew up running, right? He, I mean, he won world record after world record. He was almost like the guy never got tired. If you ever saw him run, he would, just, he would sprint. The last kilometer of the race, he would sprint, sprint it, just dust everybody. It's like he never ran out of energy. And that's the, the picture that God's giving us, that his creation is exhaustionless, right? That God's revelation to us, the creation is exhaustionless. The second volume, so we've seen the, the book of nature, the, the volume of nature that God reveals to himself through nature. But then we get to this second volume, if you will, 7 through 11, where he talks about the book of Scripture, David's Bible, if you will. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God, but the law of God, the word of God, his word revives the soul, David says. Now you get up in the morning, that's what I love about the late summer and fall here in Botetourt County. You know, I walk out on my porch, you know, my hair's sticking up everywhere, I'm half awake, I got my coffee. And I'm walking out on the porch and it's just the crisp, cool air here in the morning. It smells so good here. I don't know what it is, it just smells good in Botetourt County. I should be like the guy for the, uh, you know, the, the advertising guy for Botetourt, shouldn't I? Come to Botetourt where it smells good, you know. 
sorry. But you get up in the morning, you got your cup of coffee, you're walking out on the porch, it's a crisp, refreshing morning, you see the sun rising, and you're thinking it's going to be a great day here, right? And you're refreshed. But that doesn't transform your wicked heart, does it? You enjoy it, but it doesn't transform your wicked heart. And that's the point David's making here, is that you need something more than just created revelation, the book of nature, because you're a sinner. We are sinners. And enjoying God's nature and creation is not enough to transform the sinner, not enough to transform your broken heart. You know, you can stare at the book of nature forever, but it is not capable of transforming the human's heart. It's not capable of bringing you to a place where you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so you need to understand, David says that you need to understand the significance of the book of Scripture. And so he uses a lot of different terms, a lot of different adjectives to describe the law of God, his Bible, the word. What does he say? It is the law of the Lord. He lists several different things. Look at it. It's the law of the Lord. He says it's the testimony. God's word is the testimony of the Lord. It's the precepts of the Lord. It's the commandment of the Lord. It's even verse 9, he says it's even the fear of the Lord. So what does he say? Well, he's saying that God's word, it has stories in it. He says that God's word, the Bible, it has commandments in it. It has examples in it, right? It's got, um, it's got the gospel of Jesus in it. It's got logical thinking so that we can understand God's way. The Bible has a apocalyptic vision so that we can understand about the world to come, right? You see, God has wired us to communicate with each other and to communicate with each other in such a myriad of different ways, right? And so God's word comes to us in a bunch of different ways, right? So that through God's truth, we can come to know Him. And that's why David speaks so beautifully about God's Word. Verse 8, he said, God's Word brings us joy. Not only is it beautiful, but it brings us joy. It, it refreshes, it rejoices the heart. Dear friends, this is what I pray for you. This is what I've been praying for you this week, that you can really receive Psalm 19, because Psalm 19 is a real litmus test. It's a real litmus test, isn't it? He says, your word is more pure, it's more, it's more to be desired than gold, than precious gold. More than pure gold, he says. And then he uses this illustration of honey. Now, when we came here last year to candidate with you, um, our very own Dan Babish here in our congregation gave me a bottle of honey. And on the label, it's called Fincastle's Finest. And it really is Fincastle's Finest. <laughs> it's really, really good honey. I mean, I savored every little last drop. I had my tongue in the bottle. You know, I was trying to like Pooh Bear, trying to get the last little bit out of that bottle. It was so good. It was so good, right? I savored that last, every last little drop. David says the Word of God is sweeter than the drippings from the honeycomb. It's almost like could you lay under a honeycomb and just open your mouth and the perpetual dripping of that sweet thin castle's finest. Dan, I'm not going to come and lay in your backyard. I promise that's the picture that David gives us here. That's what it means to him. He gets great delight from God's Word. It's an amazing picture, isn't it? It's so satisfying. But why? Why is God's Word so satisfying? Well, if you remember when Paul said to Timothy about the Old Testament Scriptures, he was referring to the Old Testament Scriptures and talking to Timothy. What did he say? Timothy, since childhood, you have known the Scriptures that are able to make you wise for salvation, he says, through faith in Jesus Christ. So even the Old Testament Scriptures were pointing, like David, to this coming Messiah. Like Isaiah was pointing to the one, the Messiah would come and suffer, right, for our sins. And so these Old Testament Scriptures were pointing to this coming King, pointing to this true and great satisfaction that we could have in Christ. And then David says that we're treasuring, not only should we treasure God's Word like honey dripping from a honeycomb, but he says also as we see God's Word revealed to us, it brings great reward, he says. But then he sticks in this next section, and it's really important for us to get at what David's saying here, get inside what his understanding is. He's saying God has written his autograph right in the book of nature. God has revealed his saving grace in the book of Scripture. But there is somewhere else that God has to write in order for us to find joy in the book of Scripture. There is somewhere else God has to write in, in order for us with our eyes to see the glory in the book of nature. This past Friday, I played golf for the first time in 10 years. Over 10 years. Boy, was it an adventure. 
it was the Young Life Golf Tournament. You know, we have a golf course surrounding our entire church, Ashley Plantation. And I am not much of a golfer, my friends. In fact, you can ask the guys I was golfing with. <laughs> I am certainly not much of a golfer. But I did carry us on hole number 10. That's my claim to fame. I carried us on hole number 10. But as you probably know, right, there are people out on Sunday mornings, very well out here right behind us on Ashley, who are playing golf on a Sunday morning. And if you were to go up and ask them, why don't you come to church? Well, you might say, they might say, well, you know what? I can worship God just as easily here on the golf course. I can worship God in nature. Well, as I experienced yesterday, it's incredibly difficult to worship God in nature on the golf course when you're dropping balls like flies in the ponds and the sand traps. It's really hard to do that. You know, I'd love to go over to Ashley Plantation on a Sunday, almost like a Pharisee who jumps out of the bushes to confront Jesus when he was walking on the Sabbath. You know, jump out of the bushes on the golf course on a Sunday and see how many guys are just chucking their clubs after a bad shot and then praying, Oh, Lord, gracious God, I love you with all my heart. Thank you for afflicting me in this way and bringing suffering into my golf game because I just put my ball in the water. Thank you, Lord, that my friend has just beat me on the golf course. I'm full of praise for Jesus. It's not going to happen that way, friends. Why doesn't it happen that way? Because you can't just stare at the starry hosts of the heavens forever. They aren't going to soften your heart and bring you delight in the Lord Jesus. They won't. And so David speaks about the fact that God not only writes in the book of nature, in the book of the Word, He writes His revelation in nature and in, through His Word, but then that God writes indelibly into our consciences. That He uses created order as you look into its beauty. And if we're not believers, we say, well, I don't understand what all of this means. And have you noticed that even the most brilliant scientific minds are trying to find out what it all means? They don't know what it all means. You know, in uh, Switzerland, Lucerne, Switzerland right now, they have this uh, giant underground collider, right? And they built this thing. It's billions and billions of dollars underground. And they're doing this research colliding all of these neutrons, I don't know what they all are, ons together, right? And they're trying to discover the God particle, right? And what if they discover the God particle? Well, who created the God particle, right? It's like creation saying, what does all of this mean? What does all of this mean? And until God writes into the conscience of man and helps them see their need of grace, their eyes will be open, they'll see their need for pardon, and their hearts can be cleansed. But until He does that, you'll never find out what it all means. Notice the vocabulary he uses to describe the Bible, right? He uses this great section of vocabulary to describe his word. And then he uses a lot of vocabulary, it's interesting, to describe sin as well, doesn't he? You see, it's almost as if God has made David come face up with his sins and say, here's the real problem. See, the problem here is not with creation or the cosmos. The problem here is not with the revealed Word of God. The problem here is in his heart. And until these things come out into the open, there's not a way that he is going to find a pointer to salvation. God's Word is not going to give him the thrill of seeing and living in nature and in the universe. See, that's what the message of God's Word is, first and foremost. That it needs to give you the bad news first before it gives you the good news. And that's what David's speaking about here. You see, God has written into the conscience of us. And he's begun to pray for grace and for forgiveness to understand. David prays, God, give me the grace and the forgiveness to understand what all this means. And the law of God itself can't do that. Now, what do I mean by the law? Why can't the law of God not do that? Well, you understand that the law of God is powerless to save you. Remember how Paul puts that in Romans 8, 3 and 4. Paul says, what the law could not do. You know, Paul's saying that the law, there's something that the law of God cannot do, Paul's saying in Romans 8. All, Paul's saying all the law can do is condemn you. And so he said that the law, what it could not do because it was weak through our flesh, God did by sending His Son in the likeness of our flesh and He took our place. And we, beloved, we can't imagine the pains, the unimaginable pains that Jesus had to bear on our behalf. But we believe that it was for us as He hung and He suffered there on the cross. That's the message. 
The law in itself, itself can't save you, but the gospel can. And that's what Paul's saying. The law is pointing to this coming King, this coming gospel, this coming Messiah who will suffer for you, who will take your likeness onto Himself in His flesh and die on the cross. And that's the message. And you look up to the Father and say, Lord, do I have this right now? Because if you know Christ, you've got it right. So He's revealed Himself in creation. He's marvelously revealed Himself in His Word. And then He begins through that to stir up a sense of your sin and a sense of shame in you. And you see that if I don't know Christ, then I don't know anything. And if I don't know Christ, then I don't get it yet. I don't know it yet. But by Your grace, Lord, would You show me that so that I might come to know You. But what's the point of all of this? Psalm 19. First and most importantly, the first point of this is that it's the first principle of everything that's Christian. Psalm 19 gives us the first principle of everything that's Christian. See, that's the first and greatest need is to know that there's nothing that I can do to save myself. And that I desperately need to be saved. But there's nothing, friends, here today that you can do yourself to be saved. There's nothing. You know, you could be the most intelligent person here in the room this morning. You have the highest IQ. You can be the wealthiest person in worldly riches here among us this morning and still not understand this. You see, it's in coming to a ch- as a child to the Lord and saying, nothing in my hand I bring. The Lord, simply to your cross, I claim Naked I come to you. Lord, I am naked. I have nothing. I bring nothing to you. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. See, my only hope and salvation is seeing my sin and then meeting the Savior, Christ. That's the first thing we see. Second thing we see here that's important to us, important for us, is this psalm teaches. God has given us an incredibly beautiful and wonderful universe to explore. And I can't overestimate that. Listen, God is not against you exploring His world. He's not. He delights that you would explore His creation and His universe. He's given it to you. He's gifted it to you. Explore it, right? If you're a Christian believer here this morning, you are among us, those among us who it's safe to explore because you know who made it, right? He spoke it into existence. You know where it came from. You know where His creation is going, right? You see, God has placed you in this garden of creation. Tim Keller said that we're all gardeners. And I don't have time to explain this whole illustration that he used, but essentially God has created the world. It's a garden. And He has made you gardeners. Well, I'm not a gardener. I think I plant dies. Not that kind of gardener. Just track with me. God has created you, and whatever your role is, husband, wife, mother, father, student, child, employee, whatever, you are a gardener. And your job is to explore and to enjoy this universe that He's gifted you to. You know, maybe it's science, and you're peering into the unknown universes, and you're gardening as you do that. Maybe it's a doctor, and you explore the vastness of the human body. It's like a universe in and of itself, right? And you're a gardener as you explore, and you grow, and you help heal folks. The artists who plumb the depths of God's creation, they, they explore the grand artistry of creation and design and in drawing and in painting and sculpture. Musicians as you compose and you create music and there are infinite combinations of notes and beats and measures and all that stuff that you can string together. It's amazing. You know, maybe you like math. Math, the garden with math. That's pretty, pretty cool. I'm not very good at it, but math's pretty neat. I appreciate it at least. The mathematicians, they're exploring numbers and shapes and theories and how they all work together in their gardening. Even businessmen and women, they learn how to function as Christians in the business world. You're gardening. You're enjoying God's creation and the roles He's placed you in. And so in Psalm 19, God's saying, go and explore it. Enjoy it. And I hope that thrills you this morning. Enjoy it. See, the man on the golf course this morning, he's not thrilled about this. He's not thrilled about it. The believer, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. God's almost like He's saying, as you're exploring His creation, God's saying, come and find me. Come and find me. Like a giant game of peekaboo. 
not to diminish God and His power, His infinite, infiniteness, but He's like peekaboo. Come find me. Come enjoy me. Come find me in creation. And then the third thing we see is that His revelation is inescapable. David talks about the sun, that the sun hits every nook and cranny of creation. That every part of the earth is subject to the sun's light. There's nowhere that you can go and hide from the sun. Even the Antarctica still receives sun, even though not many, many hours of the day. So Christians, we need to understand this. We need to understand that God's sun penetrates all of the world. We need to understand this as, as we hang out and we talk and we befriend unbelievers or the atheists because the unbeliever, the atheist, you know what the burden they have? They have an incredibly huge burden they have to carry. And that burden is this, is they have to press back against God's creation. They have to press back against God's revelation. They have to deny God's revelation. They have to suppress God's revelation because it's staring them in the face day in and day out. And so Paul in uh, Romans 1 speaks of them holding God's revelation back. They try to suppress it. They press it down, but they cannot forever suppress it or hold it back, can they? Because it bubbles up all over the place. It's like the spring that bubbles up from the ground for an eternity. And once you try to plug one hole, it pops out again. God's majesty, His revelation, His glory pops out all over the place. It bursts forth all over the place. So here is something for us as we speak to those who deny the very existence of God. I know something about you that you are denying about yourself. That you carry an immeasurably huge burden on your back. Trying to suppress the truth. Trying to suppress God's revelation. You can appeal to science or art or you can appeal to anything and yet you're denying what's written in the cosmos that the heavens are declaring the glory of God. And that's precious for us. If those of us who are in Christ here this morning, that's precious for us, friends, isn't it? That we can receive this revelation, that we can enjoy His creation, that we can know the God of the universe. Well, this table before us this morning, this communion table, the Lord's Supper, you see, this is a window to view the brightest star in all of our cosmos. What is he talking about? What do you mean? Well, in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, very beginning, when Luke was sharing the story about this coming Messiah, he gives a name, he attributes a name to Jesus that many of us don't know. It's when Luke was t- telling, telling us about Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Zechariah was giving this prophecy about his coming son, John the Baptist, in Luke chapter 1. Let me just read to you this prophecy, and I'll help you understand that this table is the brightest window into the brightest star of the universe. Here's what Luke says in Luke 1. He says, And you, child, talking about John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy on high. Get what Zechariah calls Jesus. Because of the tender mercy of God, our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Guess who he's talking about? Jesus. The sunrise from on high will visit us. And He will give light those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And He will guide our feet to the way of peace. The only peace, friend, that you are ever going to find in this life is to be found at this table right here. This is where the sunrise from on high comes to visit us. He came to bear your sins past, present, and future arrogance, your pride, your unbelief, your lust, your meanness, meanness. He came to bear that on the cross. And if you do not submit to the cross of Jesus, friends, you will be forever lost. And the burdens you think you carry now will be infinitely multiplied for eternity in hell if you do not turn to Him. I'm all seriousness, friends. The sunrise from on high has come to visit us. Walk in His light. Relish in His light.
Father, we thank you for your word. Oh, Father, it is perfect. Oh, God, your word is priceless. But because of our sin, you knew that even though we could savor and enjoy creation, that we would only halfway be able to taste it. It's almost like our taste buds are just broken. And all we can taste is just a hint of the beauty of creation. All we can taste is just a hint of your love, but it will never be enough to transform our heart. But David the psalmist says to taste and to see that the Lord is good. So Lord, we want to taste you. Give us the taste buds, the ability to savor Jesus over ourselves or our sin. We would be able to taste and see that God you're good. Thank you, Jesus, that you are indeed the sunrise on high who came to visit us and you came and you died on that cross for our sins, past, present, and future. And if we would just only believe in you and what you've done for us and receive what you've done for us on the cross, we can have forgiveness for eternity and we can begin to taste life like you truly designed us to taste it, to taste and see, to know you, to love you to live in your light and to walk in your light and to live in peace that we've never known before. It's the peace that goes beyond any understanding that we have and can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you this morning. Lord, I pray if we're believers here this morning that we would save for every bite and every sip this morning. That these are really kisses from Jesus to us to remind us of the preciousness of the gospel that it is the power to transform us, to change us, to bring new life. And Lord, to uh, spend an eternity with you. And we long for that. And this is just a, just a foreshadowing, a taste of that. Lord, help us to receive your grace this morning as we receive these elements. We would receive your grace. That it might encourage us to keep putting one foot in front of the other the next day after the next day as we wait upon you, as we love you, as we serve you, as we love our spouses, as we love our moms and dads, as we love our children, as we love our bosses, as we love our neighbors. Help us, Jesus. Refresh us this morning. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Our elders, please now come forward as we observe and celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning. they're doing that, I want just to remind you that this is God's table. This isn't Wellspring Presbyterian Church's table. This isn't a Presbyterian Church table. This is the Lord's table. And I'm inviting you. I am inviting you. It's like the wedding supper of the Lamb. You get the invitation. You got the invitation in your hand. I'm inviting you to partake with us. If you have trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, if you're not yet sure where you stand with God, Scripture is very clear that it says, do not partake of these elements lest you bring judgment upon yourself. So it's okay. Let the elements pass you by. Don't be embarrassed. It's for really the safety of your soul. Friends. Allow these elements to pass you by and use this time to examine your heart. Use this time to pray what David prayed in Psalm 139. Search my heart and know me. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of the last If your children are not yet a communicant member, have not met with the elders here at Wellspring received into communicant membership, let me encourage you again to let the elements pass by them as well. Great opportunity for you to explain the preciousness of the gospel to them today. Remember, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed just like grape juice is made or wine is made. Those grapes have to be crushed to extract the juice. Christ was crushed for us. And his blood was extracted for us. The punishment that brought us peace with God was upon Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, He took bread and He broke it. And after He had given thanks, He said, This is My body, broken, broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of Me. Let's pray. Lord, we praise You for Your willingness to take our sin upon Yourself. Thank You, Lord Jesus. We are, we are immeasurably thankful you were broken for us. Your body even was broken for us. So Lord, we pray that you set apart this bread from a secular to a sacred use that we might always, always remember your sacrifice of love for us. In Jesus' name.
remembrance of me. In the same manner also Christ took the cup, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. You're not bound by the old covenant, but you are bound now by the new covenant. And that sign of the covenant is my blood. There's no longer a need to be shedding of blood, human's blood, but Christ's blood has been shed for you. So drink this in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim and you celebrate the Lord's death until he comes again in the final resurrection. Father, we're thankful that this cup reminds us that your blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sin like a grape. Lord, you were crushed for us blood poured out on that cross. And it wasn't just ordinary human blood, but it was the blood of the Son of God shed for us. And we don't want just our feet washed, but we want to be washed in your blood from head to toe. Every nook and cranny as the sun shines on the earth and every nook and cranny is uncovered by its light, so may the blood of Jesus cover every nook and cranny of us. That every sin and every entanglement, every slavery, every lustful thought, every fear, every shame, everything would be exposed in the light of the cross. We'd be covered by the blood of Jesus and washed clean and made new. So thank you, Lord. We may, may we never forget the price that you paid for our redemption. In Jesus' name, amen. as Christ drank the wrath of His Father deeply. He drank from that cup every last drop. So you drink this in celebration. Drink this in remembrance. Father, we love you. There is somberness and celebration all mixed within here. There's the wedding supper of the Lamb. There's celebration. But in a sense, there's a funeral here too. <laughs> For those of us who are in Christ, we have died to ourselves died to our will and yet there's a resurrection too that we've been resurrected into new life thank you Lord that all of these things are mixed in here together and we thank you ultimately that there is going to be a second coming of Christ a second advent where he indeed is coming again to save this world to set this creation once again aright for sin is gone there will be no more tears no more sadness no more brokenness we long for that day, but in the meantime, may we be strengthened by these precious means of grace. Strengthen us with your word, and Lord, as we look up each day and we see the book of nature, may we be encouraged 
May we, we be encouraged by the book of Scripture and may you write the promises of the gospel on the consciences of our lives and hearts. Sear your word into our minds and hearts that we might not sin against you and we might treasure you above all things. So let's sing now with joy as we celebrate the Lord together. And as we do that, remember the mercy ministry offering will be going around as well. Let's sing.